0: Welcome to the Evolution Exchange, Um, really thankful for everyone joining us. Um, Just for context, so Evolution Exchange is a platform for thought leaders within the tech and fintech and HR industry to share ideas on current topics of relevance to our community of technology and business followers. So today we're going to discuss a particularly poignant topic at the moment, building a culture of empathy and inclusivity in the workplace. So, during the session, we'll discuss key ideas from three three thought leaders in the talent acquisition ecosystem and HR ecosystem. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Bethlehem, Abby Kumar, and Uta Breshta. Um, Victoria is Chief People and Culture Officer at Ventus.io. with 20 years experience in people strategy, recruitment, technology, and edtech. Abby is Global Director of People and Operations and Technology at Coinbase and a Business Transformation Leader with seven years prior experience at Google with a focus on technology throughout his career. And Uta is Chief People and Culture Officer at ST Telemedia Cloud with 25 years experience leading and developing talent driving transformational change within firms such as JLL, ST Telemedia Cloud, and Boston Consulting Group. So delighted to be joined by all three of you. Um, It'd be fantastic if you could just give a quick personal introduction. Um, If we start with Victoria. Victoria.
1: Thanks, Jake. And hello, everyone. Uh, Great to be a part of this session with these uh, two wonderful co-panelists here. Um, As Jake mentioned, makes me feel very old when he says I've had uh, over 20 years experience in the HR and CPO environment. Uh, But with that has come a lot of lessons learned, hopefully a few that I can share with you today. However, I haven't just worked at the likes of ADECO and RUNSTAD in the recruitment industry. Four years ago, I took the decision to exit the corporate world and enter the startup sector, Uh, and I haven't looked back. It's been a real ride. Uh, I'm passionate about working for organizations that really add back to the community and society. Uh, As as a, a CEO once used to say a lot, and I really buy into this, doing good feels good. So that's very much what's driven me in. The industries i've worked uh, as you can hear from my accent australian bit of a global citizen lived in the us south africa greece switzerland australia and now the beautiful singapore so again thank you for having me
0: awesome thanks thanks victoria and um, and abby
2: hey, thanks jake victoria i loved it to hear you about your passion and trying to give back for me uh, i was discovering my own life mission and the way I would articulate it is to share my ideas to help uh, people and organizations realize their potential. So as Jake mentioned, um, you know, currently it's Coinbase. And Coinbase, for people who don't know, is a biggest exchange, crypto exchange in U.S. And it's the uh, only public Web3 company out there. So trying to make more economic freedom happen in this world through blockchain and crypto. Uh, before this was Google. And Google, obviously... There's a lot of focus on improving employee experience and uh, adding value in the moments that matter to the employees and using technology, shared services, culture, data and all the usual ingredients to make as much difference as we can. Um, In many ways, I had the privilege of being part of companies where uh, respect, inclusion, employee centricity was always in the heart of how business was conducted. So very excited to be part of this conversation where we are discussing these topics. Thank you.
0: Great, thanks, Abby uh, and Uta.
3: Yeah, hi, everybody, I'm um, very excited to be here. Um, and it's it's great to see Victoria and I have got a number of things in common. We don't just have the same title, but actually um, I've just made the transition from a corporate role to the startup world um, last year. And uh, I share your experience, Victoria, it's been one hell of a ride, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I spent uh, over 25 years in a variety of roles, uh, leadership roles in HR, in transformation and operations and consulting, uh, primarily in professional services organizations, which has been great because these topics are really, really closely related there. Um, I've worked pretty much around the globe. I'm currently in Singapore. This is my third turn, I think, in being in Singapore. Um, previously, I lived in India and the US, um, all over Southeast Asia and in Australia. I'm German uh, by origin. And maybe that's part of why I'm so passionate about this topic, because I've really had to immerse myself always in new cultures, Um, so often been the diverse person, um, not just from a gender perspective, but also just from a cultural perspective. And um, it's really a topic that's interesting because it does span um, all countries, but the nuance is always very different, um, different flavors of the same topic. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to the conversation today.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Uta. Um, So, yeah, I guess we'll jump straight into the questions. Um, So, first question. Um, So, the topic, obviously, building a culture of empathy and inclusivity in the workspace. So, what what do these terms mean um, in the context of the workspace or of the workplace? And why are they important when hiring the right talent? So, um, Uta, do you want to kick off with with that one?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, I think you know, if I kind of go back in my career, where it all started was with the idea of um, diversity. But I think what we've learned over the years now is diversity is just a numbers game, right? Unless you bring inclusion and empathy into the mix, um, it's just about meeting the numbers. And that's not actually achieving the ultimate goals of why we're even talking about diversity. It's like, you know, you have got a party going and you invite all sorts of different people, but you're playing music that doesn't appeal to everybody. You're you're giving food that not everybody can eat. That means you don't have a great party, right? You might have a diverse group of people in the room, but you're still not having a good time. And that's really where inclusion and empathy really come in from my point of view. Um, It's about making sure that the diverse workforce that we all, I think, ultimately believe is superior can actually bring their differences to bear. Um, And inclusion without empathy doesn't work because empathy is about really wanting to understand the unique perspectives and the work styles. It's a foundation that's required for an organization and an individual to really be um, inclusive in what they do. Um, Just to share an example, and I'm sure um, both Victoria and Abby have got great examples as well. A couple of years ago, I had an employee on my team who was fantastic, um, who had a hearing impairment, so disability. And um, you know she was able to function really well in most communication settings. She had a hearing aid, um, but she did struggle in certain situations. When there was a big group, um, everybody was talking at the same time, or when she was seated in a room where she couldn't see the speaker, for instance. Um, she just couldn't understand what's going on. And so it required both empathy on my part in terms of actually spending time with her, understanding her disability and wanting to make a difference. <laughs> And then deliberate inclusion um, in the meetings, right, making sure that there are ground rules in the meeting, um, that people do not all talk at the same time, making sure she has the right seat and being prepared to tell somebody, hey, you've got to get up and sit down over there because I need her to sit here. Um, She would not have been successful without that. Um, And I think that's just a small case, but it really highlights why diversity on its own without empathy and inclusion just it's not going to work
0: fantastic thanks you so that's, That that's that's a really good example and kind of clarifying how those terms can you know be very apparent in in a real world example um so yeah victoria the, the same question um so what do these terms mean in the context of the workplace and why are they important when hiring the right talent
1: I think Uta did a a beautiful job of uh, defining and responding on that one, and I loved your party analogy. Uh, I could completely relate to that, having lived and worked in a number of different countries and been to uh, some weird and wonderful parties in that time. Uh, Having said that, I think you know if I was to add to um, Uta's great comments already, I think that a big part of what we're talking about here today is creating environments for people to be their best to deliver their best and enjoy their best experience right and that is fundamentally underpinned by people being in an environment where they feel valued, where they feel trusted and respected and for me you know, I'm quite simplistic in the way I look at these things. I think that an inclusive and empathic environment absolutely delivers in, in on those areas. Um, and once people feel safe and feel like they can be themselves and bring their best to the job, then that's when you find that people are truly engaged. And I always say that engagement leads to productivity and productivity leads to profitability. So it is actually a fundamental business essential to get these components right, if you want to have an engaged, productive and profitable organisation. The second thing that I would say is that for me, when I was really thinking about these these two areas, um, at the very root of creating an empathic and inclusive workplace, is that of addressing and removing bias. And as we all know, you know, you've got your cognitive bias and you've got your unconscious bias. The cognitive bias is people who actually know this is what they think and feel, and they act and form opinions and make statements based on where their headspace is at. The unconscious bias, probably a little bit more dangerous, is the ones that people are less aware of that are deeply rooted. And, you know, these are things that are shaped from where we grew up, how we grew up, where we went to school, the people that we spent time with in our personal and professional lives, the work environments we've had currently and previously, and, of course, the media and general culture. So for me today, I think uh, one of the underpinning themes that I would like us all to think about is how do we acknowledge, recognise and address the bias that often makes it difficult to create a culture of inclusivity and empathy. Back to you, Jay.
0: Awesome. Thanks, thanks, Victoria. Um, Abby, same question.
2: Yeah, I love the depth and nuance of this conversation. Thanks, to Victor and Victoria. I'm still stuck with the music party and food going into the weekend. You know? So um, I, I, let, let me touch back to what Jake, you were saying, like in the context of the current workspace. So what is the current workspace? Uh, in my mind, today we operate in a very complex domain, right? So the cause and effect is not clear. The context is changing every day. There's a lot of uh, impetus on moving fast and getting things done. So the question is in the backdrop of that uh, is a culture of empathy and inclusivity important and i think it's not important because of the right thing to do it's it's also important because as victoria was saying our very survival depends on that like there needs to be a culture where uh, people believe that the best ideas are going to win and if you take the time of getting a representative pool of you know, people, you know, diverse candidates, they come in and they feel respected and they feel it's safe for them to share their ideas and they have the opportunity to do that. I think that's the very essential ingredient for you to survive and thrive as a business. So I think uh, without this, we won't last. And it's all the more important that we de- don't deprioritize it versus uh, anything else which, you know, which comes uh, becomes a priority.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Thanks, Abby. Um, So, moving on to the second question, um, what role do leaders, including chief people officers, play in setting the tone for the company culture and creating an environment that values empathy and inclusivity? So, particularly relevant to our current panel, um, Victoria, as a chief people officer, do you want to take that one?
1: Sure. Thanks, Jake. So, I think... For this, I'd like to actually look at the two areas um, separately because the ideas that I'm wanting to share today uh, are quite different. And if I focus on the inclusivity part, the thing that I've found in the organisations I've worked in is that when people try to be too many things at once, they tend to fail at all, right? So I, I believe and I would recommend to the CEO and any leadership team I'm working with. But when it comes to driving an inclusivity program, focus on something or areas that really relate well to the business and its mission. Because I think that's how you get your entire organization on board and really buying into those programs. Too often I've seen companies try to do, let's deal with people with disability, mothers returning to work, the um, elderly, the, you know, and the list goes on and, and you find yourself asking, sorry, what does this company stand for? What is it that they really believe in? Because when you try to be all things, like I said, that, that I think actually comes across as disingenuous and inauthentic in the organisation. And a really good example that I have of that. Is that when I was in the recruitment industry the mission of the last company I worked for ADECO was very much around you know making the world work for all and 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 finding gainful employment for everyone and one of the target groups that we identified with was young graduates people who had no work experience who are entering the workforce and were often knocked back because they didn't have work experience. So how we were gonna help them get some experience and exposure so that they could then find a job. And at ADECO, we created a global program that literally targeted young graduates coming in to try and therefore for the role of a CEO for one month. And out of that, we recruited a lot into business, we placed a lot with our clients. So that inclusivity program really aligned to the company's purpose and mission and at the same time spoke to our area of inclusivity and the the demographic that we had chosen at the time. Now, if I look at the second part of that question, that of being, you know, how do we drive the empathy agenda? Well, I tend to live by a, um, a very simple approach, which I call the talk, tell and teach. So the talk part is, as the CPO or senior leader, talk about empathy regularly. What is it? What does it mean? What are the gains? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What's good empathy? What is it like when you don't have empathy? Create a story where people are talking about it and it becomes a a regular part of the daily dialogue in your organisation. So it's a bit like one of those comfortable shirts that people put on. They understand it, they like it, they feel comfortable in it. This in turn, I think, takes away that stigma that sadly, some leaders still believe that being an empathetic leader means you're weak. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. So I definitely believe that that talk part is is essential to kicking off an empathetic culture. The tell part is about giving people the statistics and the data that sits behind it. In other words, you are are positioning why we do it with solid facts and research and data. Recently, there was a great survey, an article printed in HBR, and Harvard Business Review shared that some 20,000 employees globally had been assessed, and 80% of them came back saying, we would move companies for a more empathic leader, and that of the leaders that they'd worked with, only 40% of them had the empathy gene. So again, that comes into the tell part when you're trying to embed empathy into the organisation amongst your leadership team and lastly the teach you know this is where you show examples of where empathy is being given um, in the organization really effectively this is where you lead by example Uh, this is where you call out moments where people could have been more empathic and show them how so, yeah, I think for empathy, the talk, tell, and uh, teach approach, and for the inclusivity, look at something that's aligned to your business purpose and target a program accordingly.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Victoria. That's fascinating. Um, Abby, same question. So, uh, how, uh, what, what role do the leaders, chief people officers play in, um, in that culture um, of empathy and inclusivity?
2: Well, thanks, Jake. Victoria, I love your simple analogies and illustrations about how you are trying to make it happen, and as well as how you spoke about the right prioritization and alignment with the business goals. Like, it's so clear that unless and until you do it, things will not get the right momentum. So, for me, um, C, you know, GP, CPOs and leaders play a huge role. It, um, in my mind, I have like three different ways in which they can help in this situation. Uh, first and foremost, it's role modeling. Right Empathy and inclusion, as Victoria was saying, should show up in all of their interactions. Um, there should be a direct correlation in the company values where you should have a version of collaboration or respect, which should be clearly mentioned and articulated repeatedly by everybody in the organization. Uh, second, I think incentives, like aligning incentives will drive the right behavior. And incentives can be aligned through the right process, policy goals how performance is managed how decisions are taken um all of these need to reflect empathy and inclusion and there there should be an accepted way of getting inputs and feedback from everybody in an equitable fashion okay and unless and until you give everybody time irrespective of which time zone they are in which language or culture they come from it won't feel real right so the devil is in the details but it's important that we make sure every part of the puzzle is addressed. Last and not the least, the governance. Like, how do you hold each other accountable? Right? The leaders need to visibly demonstrate that they are open to constructive feedback themselves. Right. Is there a culture of continuous improvement? One thing uh, which I have seen both Google and Coinbase do is on a weekly basis, there used to be AMAs. It's like, ask me anything, anonymous questions, no holds bar. right? Of course, sometimes there are funny questions in there, but give and take overall is the right thing to do to b- to build inclusivity and give everybody an option to voice their opinion.
0: Excellent, thanks, Abby. Um, Uta, um, same question.
3: Yeah. Um, so first of all, I mean, Victoria and Abby, I I totally agree with you guys. the The leadership role modeling cannot be underestimated here, and I actually often get. A bit of a allergic reaction when I'm in the room and the topic of diversity comes up and everybody looks at me, and I'm like, "Yeah, I might be the CPO, but that is actually not my job. That is your job. I'm a supporting role here. Um, uh, there is a lot of infrastructure HR can put in place, uh, whether that is a review of benefits, um, uh, you know, the um, review of, of of compensation practices, making sure that there're mentorship programs and training, etc., out there. But l- ultimately. It is the leadership responsibility to make this happen. Um, walking that talk, as you said, Ami, is, is absolutely essential here. It's, it cannot be delegated to HR. Um, the second you do that, it is, it is not something that is absolutely carried. And it will show very quickly to the employees that that is actually not something that the leadership truly buys into. So um, really, really critical. Um, now on the walking the talk it's obviously easier said than done right Um, uh, so Victoria was speaking about the bias piece and I've been in a couple of situations where we've actually had unconscious bias training to the leadership teams and these were always real eye openers Um, we all have our biases and in a way we're all in the minority at some point right if you slice us Far, far, enough as, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm i I'm, a, I'm German, I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are many, many aspects to me that might make me the one person that is a bit unique. And once you start people to understand, help people understand what that feels like and what biases they have that they carry with them, um, and how even the best intentions can backfire, um, that is a very important starting point. But, um, getting the leadership team to really buy into that, understanding that embracing um, that understanding and the training in in biases is a a really critical first step. Um, And again, HR plays an important role here in terms of facilitating that conversation. Um, But just a couple of other reflections because um, both Abby and Victoria have already covered a lot of the topics. Um, The reality too is we're all just human, right? Um, And so when I speak to, the leadership teams that I work with, I often tell them there is, you know, you're not going to be perfect in every situation. So focus on the moments of truth. There is a few moments of truth in the lives of our employees where it really matters how we respond. Um, those could be, this is the recruiting time. This is the time where they exit the firm. Um, but these are also times like what we have been through in the last couple of years. I was in the U.S. during the um, George Floyd riots Um You know, societal events that really matter to certain groups in the organization or certain certain employee groups. Those are moments of truth where it really matters how we respond as a leadership team. And if we get that right, and we make a few mistakes here and there along the way, that's all right. But we've got to get those moments of truth right. And if I look at our industry right now, um, technology, there isn't a day where um, you know jobs aren't being shed by by a lot of the tech players. Some are doing really well and there's lots of really bad examples of how people get laid off over email or they find out they no longer have a job. Those are kind of, that's a complete lack of empathy and that's a moment of truth where the leadership teams are failing. So I think that that is one area that um, we can all collectively help our leaders to just remember when does it matter and when does it not matter. Um, Mm -hmm. And then at the same time also draw the lines of what can I tolerate and what do I not tolerate? And that's the other piece around diversity and inclusion. We we make mistakes, but there are red lines. And when those red lines are crossed, we should never, ever tolerate those red lines, even if that happens to be the lead senior sales leader in the organization, or if that happens to be um, uh, you know, somebody who is very important to a particular client relationship. Um, it's, it's a moment of truth, but in a slightly different way in, in terms of You know, everybody being very clear, what do we stand for and what do we not stand for? Um, So that, yes, sometimes we make mistakes, but there are certain areas where that really matters. And then we get it right. And I think that's um, that helps make this really large topic a little bit more manageable. Um, because I think sometimes I also hear from leaders that they just feel overwhelmed. They don't know what's right or wrong anymore, and I don't even know how to speak to my employees any longer. And I think if you can kind of simplify that for them, it actually makes it a lot easier and more digestible for everybody.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. That's really interesting. Um, Just um, before I go on to the third question, uh, a good friend and previous podcast contributor, Simon Bernie's just come in with a question. So, um, I just wanted to um, throw this one out. Um, what are some ways to establish and maintain empathy and inclusion in a hybrid workforce? So, a bit, bit of a curveball, because I, I appreciate no one's uh, um, managed um, to prepare for this one, but I thought it, lo- it was a good question. So, I thought I'd, uh, I'd put that one out there. So, any volunteers to take that question? <laughs>
3: I'm happy to jump in first. Um coming out of originally the real estate industry, my last job with the JLL. This was a huge topic, right? Um because they're in the in the in the world of um, uh, workspaces and workspace in the broadest sense, not just the office space, but really, you know, where is work getting done. And the topic of of engagement, diversity, inclusion um, was very very hotly debated because it is much easier to control certain interactions and certain things in a curated workspace that's provided by an employer you you know you can enforce um, ergonomic rules much better you can um, ensure much better um, you know you can monitor much better what's going on actually on the on the on the shop floor very different when people are in in very different locations I think this has actually Um, two pieces to it. On the one hand, um, there are some very specific actions employers can take. Um, It starts with the ergonomics of the workplace um, and ensuring that employees, and I'm thinking specifically disabilities, but really everybody, um, has a workplace where they can work effectively um, and has the budget to fit that out, for instance um it was automatically when we all went into lockdowns everybody kind of assumed that they could work from home not everybody um has that luxury and not everybody has that setup and um, and a lot of companies stepped up uh, actually at that point in time i think um to really help out and make sure their employees um could get the support they needed to be set up um but that is that is just a very simple thing that makes a difference um but i think on the other hand um and this is not even an action that to be taken by the by the uh, by companies, but um, I find actually the hybrid work uh, model to really help with inclusion in many ways, um, because it does provide people with a um, uh, a greater ability to manage different work environments or different life situations um, in a more flexible way. So it's actually been very positive in many areas. Um, but I think for for the companies all have to. Um, Really look at their employees and their employee needs um, and see what is the right solution as they move forward, because obviously the hybrid is anywhere between work from anywhere to work in the office five days a week and have some flexibility somewhere or, you um, um, work in um, work at different hours, work round the clock. Um, it's not the same for everybody, and I think that's uh, that's a conversation that really needs to happen at um, an individual company level, or sometimes even at the team level, to really see what what works with this particular team at that particular time, mm. um, as opposed to trying to have sort of a one size fits all approach. So let me just pause here. I'm sure um, Victoria and Abby have got some additional perspectives.
2: I love your thoughts. I think for me personally, uh, fully resonate with you, both Google and Coinbase, they did something called an IT work from home kit for new joiners as well as an event with the pandemic. So that was a basic infrastructure equalization across everyone. But more than that, which I have myself been experimenting with for the last four or five years, is how do we make teams spread across four different time zones at different times of their inner day feel that they're included in the conversation in the same format, Right. So, how do we give equal opportunity? And for that, this is a uh, new thought on, and maybe it existed before, but asynchronous communication. And the more you apply that across everything you're doing, the more inclusive things become. So, some very simple things. Going back to you know your example, Victoria, like simple things like circulating agenda in uh, in advance, making sure everybody has the time to prepare, give their inputs in writing before you show sure up to the meeting, right? Uh, along with that, some meeting norms on going and rotating and getting everybody to give their inputs. So there are ways if you are deliberate about it, it requires more planning, but it leads to a way more collaborative environment where everybody gets to speak. And it could even be personality differences, like introverts versus extroverts, like who opens up, who doesn't open up. And the Mm. more we do it, uh, the better the outcomes are. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: Any comments on that question, Victoria?
1: Sure. Uh, I think um, Uta and Abby gave great examples and I really relate to both. Perhaps just one um, situation that I found us doing a lot more of um, since having a hybrid workforce and that is Um, check-in, pulse-check surveys. Uh, I know that a lot of companies use them. They probably uh, at times feel like they're overused, but actually I have found in the organisations I've worked with during this period that these very specific questions um, infrequently to targeted groups of people where you're trying to see, engage, mm, is something amiss here, is this working, is that not working, those little pulse checks have been gold in the companies that I've worked in. The insights, the sharing, you know, there are a lot of cultures where if you ask them a direct question, they will not give you a direct answer. Um, they certainly don't want to feel like they're dobbing on their boss or talking ill of senior team members, etc. when you have those conversations. Put it in a survey, suddenly... There's a lot more openness and feedback being shared. And I have found that that has been incredibly helpful in not the big things, but the smaller tweaks of decisions being taken, the way we do announcements, the way we host a town hall, a topic we might include in the next electronic newsletter. Those have all come through those short, sharp pulse checks um, that we've done around engagement in order to drive that feeling of empathy we want to know what you think. Tell us. Mm-hmm. Okay, we now have that feedback. Thank you, everyone. And here's how. Here's what we're doing with it. I mean, that's empathy in action, right? So, I've, I've found that really, really helpful. It's very cost-effective. And in the startup world where I have people in 24 countries and small groups in many of those, so we don't see them on the ground, it's been essential. Back to you, Jake.
0: Thanks, Victoria. And um, I think that moving on to the third question, so I think I've got my notebook ready to take notes on this one because I'm interested in the answer to this question um, for, for us. But um, how can companies measure and assess their progress in creating a culture of empathy and inclusivity when hiring? And then a kind of sub-question um, related to that. What metrics and tools can be used to evaluate the effectiveness of diversity and inclusion initiatives? um so kind of two parts of that question but very closely related so you know take take that in any direction you wish um Abby, do you want to kick off with that one
2: no absolutely uh, i think doing simple things and doing it consistently is very important so building on what victoria was saying first and foremost you need quantitative matrix the matrix could be around um you know what percentage of people have been hired from underrepresented groups whatever way you define it uh about their retention, their progression, their performance matrix over time relative to the base, right? So some matrix and trends definitely help you figure out where the hotspots are. And then you need to add color to it through some qualitative measures. So in a pulse survey, it was a great example, uh, which Victoria shared. It can be used to uh, further find out how people are feeling, right? You can do some focus groups. Uh, You can even take feedback from candidates who are not selected. Uh, Even hiring managers, right? Like, what do they feel about the kind of candidates they're getting in the pool of evaluation? Like, did the recruiters do a good job of getting a representative pool to begin with, right? So, uh, this, I think, is a starting uh, point for you to measure and assess the progress, right? And going back to uh, the next question, Jake, which is what metrics and tools uh, can be used to evaluate effectiveness, I think you need to define um, and prioritize what are you trying to impact. Okay. So if it is about a certain kind of diversity, then you focus on that, track that against the baseline, uh, definitely look at engagement surveys and pulse surveys uh, and the experience of people. How does it vary based on people belonging to different groups? Right. Uta talk about, uh, you know, mentorship and coaching programs. So how many people are even enrolling in that? And from different are the differences across groups, right? Our job is not done just by putting the programs out there, like who enrolled, who stayed through, who benefited, and what was the impact of those actions uh, which were taken. So um, all of these different metrics and the correlation between them and figuring out where you are trying to move the needle, I think might help is how I see it. Back to you, Jay. Cool.
0: Um, Victoria, same question. Um, companies measuring and assessing their progress in creating a culture of empathy and inclusivity and any tools that can be used to evaluate how effective that is?
1: So I'm, I'm going to flip this response around a little bit and tell you what I don't think you should do in this space. <laughs> and this is not me aiming to be contentious, but more so speaking from experience. I am very anti-quota having quotas, right? Targets for the sake of targets. And I love what Abby was saying a minute ago of, you know, work out what you as an organisation are wanting to achieve and work your way back from there. Because often I think quotas are being used for external messaging, right? What's going in your investor relations packs, what's going in your board papers, et cetera, et cetera. And I say this with great passion because, as I mentioned in my introduction, I used to um, live and work in South Africa. And I, I actually moved there uh, about 12 months before Nelson Mandela came into power. And one of the first things that Nelson Mandela did was he talked about having affirmative action, which we were all fully supportive of. So you can imagine being a white, non-South African female working in the recruitment industry at the time of affirmative action coming in. Interesting time to be in that sector. Now, I've been going back to that many years later and affirmative action has done some fantastic things. Don't get me wrong, I'm fully supportive of that and I believe that that was the right thing at that moment in time for that environment. But the concept of quotas left a very bad taste in most people's mouths, be those that were being targeted or those that were being left behind. Because invariably what was happening in those conversations was that the focus was not on about ability and experience and cultural fit. But the uh, conversation became about age, where were they educated, what gender were they, Um, which uh, local language did they speak. These are not things that determine success in a position and the value that one can bring. So that has never, um, I've never forgotten that. And it has stayed with me throughout my career. And then, you know, go forward X number of years later where I was going for a position and someone turned to me and said, I think you'll get it, Victoria, because I mean, you are exactly what their quota target is. And that was just such a slap in the face, you know, whether I got it or not that I was never going to feel good about it if what really this was about was a tick-the-box quota target. So that's just my personal opinion, and when I work in organisations, I share that. Some agree with me, some don't. I guess what I'm doing here is sharing this story with you that if you are thinking about quotas when it comes to DNI, consider both sides of the quota concept and really determine if it's going to be right for your organisation and its culture.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting and I think, it, you know, really, really fascinating to hear kind of opinion on that and what worked and what didn't work with, you know, examples of obviously quite a divisive um, environment that you worked in historically. Um, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of discussions around kind of equality of opportunity and equality of outcome and whether those two things always um, align um, and whether the policies around um you know what we're talking about today really kind of enable both of those things to happen in organizations simultaneously. Um and there's a there's a lot of interesting um discussion around that currently I think. Um Usa, um any thoughts on that that question?
3: Yeah I mean everybody's already been um I think uh listing a lot of the the key points. Um maybe just to add, um I mentioned a couple of things around metrics, right? And I, I completely agree the there is a whole bunch of uh, metrics, quantitative, qualitative. You've got to bring them all together. And I love um, the idea of not just measuring your existing employees, but do speak your departing employees. We do, for instance, at, um, at STG um, Telemedia Cloud, we, we do a lot of service of the folks that have been through a recruiting process um, to really get the feedback of how did that process feel. Um, but I've also seen in my previous life, um, Discussions with clients, for instance, right? I mean, I've I've grown up, if you will, in professional services, so our clients get very familiar and very intimate with our um, client teams. And so they see as well, you know, are our client teams um, inclusive in the way they work with each other, but also in the way they work with our clients? Uh, Very, very important feedback. Um, And in my experience, one of the key things is the the devil is often in the detail. Um, Abby, you're speaking about kind of drilling into the information and that slicing and dicing is very important. More often than not, the averages don't actually tell you the story, right? The story comes when you look at... um, you know the various levels of diversity, and there is so much. There's a growing body of research that very clearly shows um, the more boxes of diversity are being ticked, the more disengaged and the more unincluded the an employee feels. So where does that come from? Really understanding that is is important for companies. I've seen um, I've seen various approaches with it. Obviously, you can set up your own. Um, metrics, and I b- would encourage everybody to do that. Um, what get me- gets measured gets done. Um, but I've also very successfully used external uh, audits. Um, there are several companies out there. Catalyst is probably the one that is best known in that, uh, in that space that provide audits as part of a broader strategy engagement. Um, and I find it very helpful when you're in an organization that is maybe just starting to talk about this topic or where you have a relatively high level of um, uh, skepticism in the leadership team about the importance um, of changing. Um, They don't necessarily listen to the HR department at that point in time, but when they spend money on research and they have a third party coming in, uh, that expert voice uh, often carries a lot more weight. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're not getting heard, um, but you feel very strongly that the organization needs to do something, I would encourage you to bring a third party in. They've got great benchmarks typically and can, uh, can really um, shortcut that process. Um, so that's, that's just as a tip. And then just a final point, I did have to smile a little bit with Victoria, when Victoria said she's very uh, anti-quota. I probably in the quo prota, uh, quota um, camp, Uh, Based on my personal experience, but I would uh, qualify just, I think, as you said, Victoria, um, there is a point in time where a quota is incredibly useful. um, And particularly in a situation where you have a massive gap. Um, As an example, um, uh, in one of my previous companies, uh, we had uh, had identified, we had basically had no African-Americans in the organization and leadership roles. And so we were set a quota, um, a team target for our executive team, not an individual target, but as a team, we had a quota um, to deal with that. Um, now, it was, wasn't a hard quota. I mean, we wouldn't have all gotten fired if we hadn't met it. But what that quota did was it really rallied the focus and it moved the needle. We would not have made some of the tough, like, we would not have looked as hard Um, if it hadn't been for the quota, right? I mean, when you have a vacancy, we would not stop searching until we found a slate that was sufficiently diverse. We wouldn't always hire um, the diverse candidate, but we forced and challenged ourselves not to stop until we felt like we had really looked. And without a quota, that would not have happened. That's my conviction. We would not have challenged ourselves sufficiently Um, And it's so easy, right? You've got a vacancy, you really need to fill that role. And you know, three people who can do the job because you've worked with them before. It's so easy to just reach out and find one of them. And that is how diversity does not change. So if you, um, a quota does help uh, force that conversation. Um, But um, I think Victoria, you're right. There are times where quotas can backfire and it's very important how you communicate the quota in the organization, um, and how people who are under the quota uh, get positioned in the organization so it doesn't feel like um, they got the job just because they looked a particular way or had a certain preference, um, not because they were qualified. So I think that's just something, it's a, it's, it's a tough topic, um, but there are absolutely times where I would be very, very pro-quota.
0: Thanks, Sita. That's really interesting. Um, Final question um, from from the list of four. So, what are some practical strategies that companies can use in hiring to promote empathy and inclusivity in the workplace? Victoria, do you want to kick off with that one?
1: Sure, sure. Um, so, look, I, I came up with uh, about five five things that I have found useful in. Happy to share that here. Hopefully this will resonate with our audience today. Um, So the first thing I think is remove uh, processes or rather implement processes that reduce the bias that I started talking about at the beginning of today's session. And an example of where I've done that in a prior life was when you do your talent reviews and your succession planning discussions. In organizations I've worked with, it's been very typical to have a photograph to have their date of birth, to have where they were educated, uh, you know, the roles that they've done, et cetera, et cetera. Take that out. Is it relevant? No. Put the name, put the position, but remove all of those personal detail references and rather focus on what have they achieved, what programs have they worked on um, and where where has their experience been. I think that's really critical. It removes all reference and um, conscious or um, unconscious bias in regards to forming opinions on those people and focuses rather on what they've delivered, what they've shown they're capable of doing, and therefore the potential that they have to move into other roles. So that's the first example. The second is um, what I would call nonverbal behavior. You know, it's when you host a meeting, being being conscious that you're not just focusing on the people that are talking, but you're making eye contact or you're finding a way to connect with everybody that's in that room. Because as humans, we tend to respond to people that are responding to us but there's a lot of people that are sitting there quietly listening, thinking. We've got a lot of great things to contribute, and we miss them simply by not having that informal communication through our eyes. So that non-verbal communication and behavior, I think, is, is also really critical. The third thing I would suggest is we all participate in a lot of meetings, probably too many. I know I do, and it's something I'm trying to work on. And I think that when you're hosting these meetings, uh, for whatever reason, it might be personality, it might be cultural, it might be physically where they are in proximity to the host, you tend to have those people that speak up and out more than the others. And I really learned a very valuable lesson on this when I moved from Switzerland to Singapore six years ago. And I was looking after um, the Asia-Pac region, 13 countries, so lots of different cultures coming together in these monthly calls. And I found that, you know, my colleagues from India, from Australia, from New Zealand, they were all speaking up. But then my colleagues from Thailand or Singapore, they were a bit quieter. And it took me a while to realise it wasn't that these people didn't have anything to say. It's that in the cultures that they'd grown up in, that wasn't the norm to bring to attention to themselves, to put their hand up, to be the loudest person in that meeting on that call. And so I had to shift my behaviour. That had to be something that I taught and I learned and then taught myself to do when facilitating these conversations to make sure that everybody in the session had a moment to share their voice. So, um, And that brought about obviously really active listening on my behalf. So that was a conscious thing that I would encourage others to do as I had to learn to do. My fourth tip is being an advocate for others. When I've created programs like Women in Leadership, so that was one of our inclusion programs in a prior company, Women in Leadership, I didn't just have women working on that program. I had an equal number of men and I had senior and less senior representation from across the organisation. You really think about having other groups being advocates for the groups that you're you're showing empathy towards and wanting to drive inclusivity with. And last but not least is find ways to build diverse relationships across your organisation. What do I mean by that? I mean connect people with people they ordinarily wouldn't work with, mix with. This really stimulates diversity of thought, great learning, and taking of insights. And an easy example is when you create a mentoring program and you're partnering people up. Don't partner someone from a sales team with someone from another sales team. Partner them with somebody from engineering. Find someone who has that skill set that that individual needs mentoring in, in an environment that he or she would not ordinarily work with you will be amazed at the personal growth and bandwidth of thought that comes out of connecting uh, diverse groups. So those are my uh, five five top tips for today. Hopefully they resonate with somebody and they become useful. Thank you. Uh,
0: fantastic, thanks Victoria, really practical examples of how we can all benefit from that I think um, so Abby, do you want to take that question um, what are the what are some uh, practical strategies that companies can use in hiring to promote empathy and inclusivity in a workspace?
2: I think Victoria did a very thorough job on actually how should we conduct our business, I'll state just something on the hiring side, Okay, so on the hiring side you can go where the diverse talent is, so one of the Google took was having dedicated investment in Atlanta and Dallas to say that this is where we have better representation in the talent outside. So let's go and focus on those markets, right? So that's one, go where the talent is. Uh, the second, I think, is similar to what Victoria was saying, blind screening, right? The blind screening, remove age, remove other identifiers as you are comparing CVs. Uh, you can also look at making your job descriptions more inclusive, Right. There is typically language which will make people doubt themselves and therefore they might not even apply. So how do you make sure that you do not make such barriers uh, occur there? Uh, Then it comes to the whole bias thing, which has been an underlying theme here. Similarity bias. Right. So how do you have people who are diverse in the hiring committees? Because then you take out the whole similarity bias on how decisions of hiring is being taken. And last and not the least. Uh, have the same bar irrespective of who you are looking at right like how do you make sure similar questions are asked similar assessments are happening because there are different ways in which bias can show up and you might fail to you know achieve the objective of giving everybody a fair chance that's it from me jake
0: brilliant thanks Henry. and uso finally that question yeah. um to you
3: so I think Victoria and Abby have already covered most of the levers. I would have added as well. I just thought maybe I'll go in a little bit more detail into a few specific ones. Um, and let me just start with the recruiting pieces. And I think Abby um, said it earlier. There is um, a focus on outcomes is really important, right? So whether that is in the in an interview or in a, an assessment, whether somebody should be promoted. Um, focusing on the outcomes of what did they, not what the person did, but what results did they actually deliver? Because there are many different ways of doing a particular piece of work and they're very different leadership styles, for instance. Um, And what I've often seen is that um, candidates would be disqualified because they didn't do it exactly the way the assessor would have done it, um, as opposed to focusing very much on, you know, what was the result, what revenue growth have they delivered how um what's the upward feedback from their teams etc that's what matters ultimately is the outcome and um, you shouldn't necessarily um focus on the process because that is where the diversity really comes to play so educating leadership teams around that is an important piece um and then the second point i wanted to make was really around bias um and in my experience you know we've talked about the unconscious biases. we talked about training uh What happens is people become aware of it, but very often there is an uncomfortable conversation that is required, right? A lot of the biases that people carry have to do with difficult topics, taboo topics like race, religion, sexual orientation, disability, things that folks are not comfortable speaking about or learning more about, some things that might go directly against their core belief system. Um, And so when you're trying to, you're raising awareness of your biases, but actually being able to be be comfortable um, to build that understanding and the empathy and the leadership team, that's another step. Um, So mentorship is a really great way of doing that. And and Victoria gave a good example of that. I've experienced a a reverse mentorship program um, as a mentee. And that was um, probably one of the most profound experiences I've had in many years. Um, I was reverse mentored by a minority colleague from a um, community that I had virtually no exposure to. Um, and it just was, it was eye-opening for me. I had no understanding how certain things were perceived. I didn't have, I was in, you know, it was in a country that wasn't my own country. So I also didn't have the cultural context. I didn't have the historical context on how certain things were perceived and that really um, changed my understanding. And because it was a one-on-one relationship, it allowed me to ask questions that I probably wouldn't have asked otherwise, right? It provided that opportunity for me to have that uncomfortable conversation, a really safe place. Um, so that really made a difference. And um, if you're considering that, I would really, really highly recommend that. It's, it, it's a really impactful um, type of process. And then the second piece, I think that's very important, are these ERGs, employee resource groups, and the allyship that goes with that. They provide safe spaces for the employees to meet with people that are like them, but they also give opportunities for leaders to engage and sponsor a group that they may not have a relationship with, um, and that helps them to understand is kind of an informal reverse mentorship at that point. Um, It it allows them to walk the talk. It allows them to learn more about other um, employee groups and it gives a safe safe space for the employees so they can be really, really impactful as well. Um, Final comment I had on on, on Victoria's point around the um, facilitation of the conversations. I think that's a really important piece is as leaders, um, whether that is an interview or whether that is um, a normal business meeting, the way we facilitate the conversations really are important when it comes to providing an inclusive environment. Um, And in my experience, it's interesting because this hybrid environment has actually been, um, has had a lot of pros um, here. Um, It had a lot of negatives, but also had a lot of pros. Uh, It's so much easier to interrupt because you can just raise a virtual hand, right? You no longer have to feel like you're speaking over somebody. Um, So it's actually opened the door for a lot of folks to feel much more comfortable in terms of Right, asking a question or, or interjecting because they no longer feel like they're being rude. It also, interestingly, sh- compensates for a lot of um, physical differences, um, such as, you know, we're all the same size on the screen. Um, even if you're a really small uh, woman, you know, you're just as big on the screen as a six foot four male. Um, and that is a less intimidating situation for a lot of women. Um people with hearing disabilities can get the caption writing on. So there are, or people for whom English is not the first language, they can look at the caption. So it's actually leveled the playing field in many areas. It's created a whole bunch of other challenges, but there's actually been some positives here. And as a leader, if you're aware of that, um, to create more inclusivity, leverage on these advantages. They really go a long way to bring... um, you know, parts in the organization into the conversation that previously may have felt excluded.
0: Brilliant. Thank, thanks, thanks, Uta. Um so I'm I'm conscious of time. Um we're coming we're coming up to the hour. Um has anyone else got any other comments they wanted to share after that final thought from Uta? <laughs>
3: Maybe just a just a final thought, um, and we kind of touched on it very briefly at the beginning of the discussion. Um, diversity and inclusion is a topic that is very that means something very different everywhere in the world, um, and I think that is you know when you're building out, and we've been talking about this when you're building out corporate programs, um, they're often driven by HQ somewhere um, with a particular point of reference. And I think as um, as leaders in organizations, helping educate and trying to really understand what does this mean for us in this particular geography, for instance, is a very important conversation to be had because in Southeast Asia, for instance, diversity has a completely different meaning. There are some topics that are much more sensitive than other topics. Um, in the US, it has a very different meaning. In Europe, it means something else. So I think that's, that's sort of the other piece, the ultimate outcome which is helping everybody bring their best self to work and really be able to contribute to the organization is the same outcome, but how we need to think about, what we need to put in place, what we need to focus on, that really has to have a, that really requires um, a, a localized approach. Awesome.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Well that's all the time we've got for today um thank you to all three of our speakers thank you abby thank you victoria thank you to some fascinating points there that were raised i think i certainly learned a lot from from listening to some of the comments today um i really appreciate you sharing all the knowledge and insight into the you know the topic that we've been discussing and obviously thank you very much to our audience um for joining and the questions that you posed on the chat and um, as i said this this will be both the live event but also then um you know published as a as a podcast um so you know i hope everyone enjoyed the episode um we'll see you next time on the next live event um and uh, once again thank you very much to everyone